Hi, and welcome to Decoding AQ, helping you to learn the tools, mindsets, and actions to thrive in an ever-changing world. Hi, and welcome to our next episode of Decoding AQ. My guest today is Jennifer McClure. Now she's based in Cincinnati. She tells me that snow is on its way, which doesn't make her happy, but she's the CEO of Unbridled Talent and Disrupt HR. She's a keynote speaker, executive coach, and a host of the weekly podcast, Impact Makers. So welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting with you today. All right. Okay. So my first one that I want to dive into, because in my bit of internet stalking I've done and finding all of these little bits where you describe, you know, you help leaders build careers that they love and lives that matter. And as a keynote speaker, I wanted to ask you about when was your last keynote? What was the subject? Where was it? And tell me about it. Oh, wow. Um, There's been an interesting question over the last couple of years, but uh, thankfully the last keynote was last week in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, uh, in the U.S. And the topic was they asked me to prepare a a keynote and a workshop different than what I often speak about, which is around, you know, strategic leadership and impact, making an impact at work and in life. Uh, They asked me to talk about leadership development and succession planning. So it was really interesting for me to kind of dig deeper into that and to create something that would both, um, I believe keynotes are about inspiring people to take action uh, and motivating them so that they can see that they have the opportunity to make an impact. So to craft a new one around leadership development and succession planning was a fun challenge for me. And there's so many components, isn't there, to giving a keynote from, well, who's the audience, as you said, how do I inspire them? How do I get them to take action? What do I cut out? You know, am I the speech writer? Am I the script writer? Am I the performer? Am I the presenter? All these multifacets. Tell me, what, what, what do you love about speaking? So in your building careers that you would love and that, you know, matters, what is it in speaking that you really love the most? And then the flip side of that coin, Jennifer, is what do you hate? the most of act <laughs> Well, how long do we have? Um, <laughs> on the love part. Um, what I love, I guess, you know, I like, as you said, to talk to people about building a career that they love and a life that matters. And I think a big piece of that is when you are working in an area where your gifts are fully utilized, um, your gifts, your talents, you know, that you are able to fully use those. And that's when you're in the flow state. That's when things are most natural to you. And for me, I've learned that that speaking and teaching and training um, is that for me. You know, I, I spent a good portion of my career, about 20 years in the corporate world and leadership and executive roles in HR. And in that role, all you know, almost always did some sort of corporate training, you know, standing up in front of people. Um, I don't know that I was in love with that, but um, you know, when I saw someone about 10 years into my HR career, who was delivering, I engaged him to deliver a training that I had done several times, but it was very dry annual training. And I was like, I hate this and I don't want to do it. So I hired someone to come in and do it. And he had our leaders laughing, uh, enjoying the training. And I'm sitting in the back row going, they're, they're loving this union avoidance training. (laughs) 
And it was because he had 47 years of experience at General Motors here in the U.S., large, you know, automotive manufacturer as a, a union, you know, VP of industrial relations. So he had amazing stories that were funny and engaging, but relevant. And uh, he made the training come alive from something that I would just stand up there and say, okay, this is required training. We have to do this. Here's the 12 things you can't do. And so it helped me to see not only how someone who does, uh, you know, speaking training well can really deliver the material in a way that people leave there uh, with takeaways and understanding of it, but it also made me sit back there and say, that's what I want to do. But I felt like I needed more stories. You know, I was only about 10 years in my career. And if I'd been smarter, I would have been writing stories down all along. Um, but I said, I kind of need to probably have 20 plus years of experience. And, you know, along the way, it kind of happened that I ended up about 20 years into my career, starting to get opportunities to speak. And when I did it, I remembered this is what I, I thought I'd want to do. And it feels good and it feels right. So, so that's what I love. I love to see, uh, light bulbs go off in people's eyes. I love to see people laugh. I love to make people cry <laughs> with purpose. Um, and I love to just make an impact. And I think as a speaker, teacher, trainer, you can, you can do that. And if you do it well, you're able to see that. Um, in terms of what I hate is a strong word. You know, my least favorite part of speaking, I think would be similar to anyone who's a uh, sole proprietor or a business owner is the business development side of that. You know, I love to be on stage. I love to teach. I love to speak. I love to train. Um, what I am, what are not my gifts and talents are the cold reach outs, the follow up to secure the business, the sending the agreements and the invoices and following up when people, for whatever reason, don't pay the invoices on time. <laughs> so that, that administrative piece, which, you know, at, at times I've outsourced, um, and hope to, to do that again at some point. But still, even if you're a, self, a small business owner, you have to be involved in marketing yourself, uh, branding yourself. And while I can do those things and, and at times do them well, uh, it's never going to be my preferred zone of genius. It's interesting, isn't it, where often our unique ability area and our zone of genius, as you put it, often has this orbit surrounding it to require it to happen. You know, a front stage needs a backstage, a whatever we look at these various things that we do where we're learning, where we're performing, where we're, you know, resourcing, where we're doing setup. It's always lots of different components and it's natural to have some things we like least and others that we uh, actually love to do. And I guess that's the, the challenge as we all evolve through our careers is what do we let go of? What do we delegate? What do we outsource, as you put it? What do we get better at that actually we didn't like it maybe because we weren't competent and then once we get competent we find we actually love it or we decide no it isn't for me and we go never again what what were maybe some of the you know most maybe impactful or the biggest source of where you've grown in your career what were some of those events and, and triggers for you Jennifer Oh, I think uh, someone asked me just this week to give my best career advice in 500 words or less and, and kind of like sat down and tried to spout off something meaningful. But, it, you know, and then when I talked to him after that, he said, you wrote a soliloquy. I asked for 500 characters. 
I said, oh, I, I, am, I thought you said 500 words. And I said, well, if it's 500 characters, I'd say take on talent, the most challenging assignments always. Um, so I think the periods of growth for me have been when I've stepped out and said I would do something or been, you know, required to do something that was difficult, um, that could have easily been avoided or uh, would have been more fun to avoid. So when, I, when I've taken on challenging assignments or even, you know, the example that I gave last week, a conference asking me to develop material in a, you know, a similar but different area, then I grow from that because now I study something different. I think about the stories that I can bring to that again, to make it relevant. Um, so any opportunity where there's a little bit of discomfort, I think is where I tend to grow. And I think where we tend to grow is if you are just getting better and better at what you've always done, that's great. You'll be making small improvements and you'll be slightly better tomorrow than you were today. But to really make those big, impactful changes in your life, I think you have to um, do something that scares you. I like that concept, you know, do something that scares you. And of course, that's very personal and relevant to each person. And it helps bring perspective. It helps us try out new things that maybe help us in future decisions of what we may evolve and do. What was the um, the reason why you took, I saw a, a new role fairly recently, sort of five, six months ago of a board member for the Defence Business Board. You know, <laughs> tell me more about that. Why did you take it? What is it? And, um, you know, what what drew you to that? Uh, that we could, that's a story in and of itself. But um, yeah, Defence Business Board which I learned after I was contacted about it is a group of executives, senior executives, uh, private sector um, that is assembled. People are nominated. You have to go through top securities, clearances, all that stuff. Um, you're a special government employee who does not get paid. Uh, the, the pitch was you get to serve your country. <laughs> I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and the board advises the Secretary of Defense, you know, a cabinet member to the President of the United States uh, and the head of the Department of Defense, which is around 2.9 million military service members in the, in the different branches, as well as almost a million civilian DOD employees. So it's a, a huge complex organization. And so they have a few of these boards. There's one called the Defense Business Board, which I'm on. There's the Defense Innovation Board that advises around innovation. Um, so I was actually reached out to by the, the director of that board. Uh, and it was you know, not uncommon. I'm, I'm working in the morning and my cell phone rings and I don't recognize the number. So I let it go to voicemail. And then I just opened up later, my voicemails, you know, are, are transcribed into text messages through Google voice. And I opened up the Google voice text, it, which was, you know, not, not exactly accurate, but I saw words like defense and business and I deleted it. <laughs> Didn't even listen to it. <laughs> said, this is spam. <laughs> so I deleted it. And a couple hours later, I was going through LinkedIn and she had messaged me on LinkedIn as well and said, I just left you a voicemail and would really like to connect with you on this opportunity. So, so that gave me a chance to look at her profile and then look at the website. And, um, you know, long story short, I was intrigued. Like, first of all, why are you contacting me? Second of all, what is this opportunity? Because uh, you know, it's, it seems both interesting and wild and weird and all these things. And she made a great pitch. You know, it was the opportunity to, to um, 
work with and around the best of the best, the smartest and the brightest, um, to have a role that she said people, you know, spend their whole lives trying to get these opportunities um, to to get in this type of, of position. So I was intrigued and it, I think that falls back to the challenge was why me? Um, <laughs> you know, what can I bring to the table? I looked at who some of the past uh, board members had been and she couldn't tell me who else she was talking to, but she kept promising that, you know, it was really, really um, high caliber people that I would, you know, be very happy to be in the room with. So I said yes, and then spent, oh my gosh, weeks and weeks filling out all of the security clearance stuff, every foreign travel I've ever been on. Uh, what was the purpose? Did I meet any spies while I was there? <laughs> every uh, piece of financial uh, history, investment. Uh, so it was it, it, you know, had to get fingerprinted, do a background check, uh, all those things, which I had done before in one of my employers. So I knew it was a pretty big deal. So in the end, uh, when they announced the nominees and I looked at the website to see who else was on the board with me again, I was kind of like, I don't know why I'm in this room, uh, but I'm glad to be here and I'm going to try to learn and soak up everything I can. And so it's been really fascinating again, to talk with uh, some of the other board members uh, particularly there are some several, well, there's three, I think, retired generals on our uh, board. Two of them are African-American, and I have really, really fascinated and intrigued by their stories about, you know, what they went through in the early beginnings of their military career and how they've really risen through the ranks. And so just appreciative of, again, the opportunity to connect with different people. And, and one of the things that we've been doing is uh, the board members do studies based off of a request from the Secretary of Defense. And our task, uh, or at least the first study, is to talk to um, make recommendations for the DOD civilian workforce, again, that million employees around the challenge of upskilling and reskilling them for the future, particularly in the, you know, the, the technologies, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, hypersonics, all of the, the things that, that our civilian and uh, DOD workforce will need to be successful in the future. So that's involved interviewing a lot of private sector employers, CHROs, chief learning officers of really large companies. So I'm grateful that I said yes. Um, my friends and advisors were like, why are you doing this? It sounds like a pretty big time commitment. Uh, you, you, again, you're not getting paid for this, but I think in the long run, I will be smarter. I will have built relationships. Um, I will be challenged. And those are I think things that have happened throughout my career. It's interesting, isn't it? The journey of events that sometimes, you know, you can laugh about thinking something was spam and deleting it to then who knows in three years time when you look back how pivotal that moment might be mm -hmm. and how our brain works in terms of and our surrounding people of what value you see of yourself and what value others see of yourself and of your time, you know, well, why are you doing this? You don't get paid. And this notion in our society of payment is a check, Correct. you know, and future of work, well, ah, oh, the payment is a check. So what's your salary? What's the benefits? What's the pieces? But actually that's not driving a lot of people's decisions. You know, you've made a decision. Many people are making radical decisions in their careers that aren't perhaps as involved as we thought they would be around the check that's written around the, the getting paid and we get paid in all sorts of things. Who do we hang out with? 
What do we learn? What relationships do we have? Do we feel that we can contribute? As you put, you know, things that matter, you know, yeah. lives that matter. So if we can have a way to contribute, to be heard, to be connected, to be in a room where we feel valued, you know, you're there not by accident. Mm-hmm. You're there by design. You're there by, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You, you know, it might not be hard to see when you're inside yourself, but for others, they will observe and see exactly why you're there. Uh, of those things. In, in terms of that's a very interesting piece, isn't it? To think about even at that scale of a million civilian workforce, how do they get ready for what is already happening? It's just perhaps not evenly distributed in terms of all of these exponential technologies and what is upskilling, what is reskilling. What do you think are maybe some of the, without going into the detail or research or those things, what are maybe some of the fundamental things that you know from your own decades in experience or the early indications of what's going to be essential things people need to be focusing on this next decade when it comes to their um, either mindsets or particular skills or things that they can embrace to ensure that that journey is one with smiles and not with frowns and unhappy places. Yeah. Well, that journey is going to be a challenge and difficult for all of us. Um, you know, no one is going to escape the fact that right now we're, we lack uh, both the number of people and the people with the skills that are needed to do the jobs of today and certainly the jobs of tomorrow. So anyone who's in any type of leadership role, and in particular, the people leadership roles that is not really laser focused on what are the skills that we'll need in our workforce and in our people uh, now and in the future, and how are we going to obtain those skills? You know, in the past, I would talk to leaders about a build, buy, or borrow uh, workforce planning strategy. You know, what what talent can we build? Uh, What talent do we need to buy? Because either it takes too long for us to build the talent or um, we don't have the resources to do that. Uh, And then what can we borrow in the terms of contractors, freelancers, et cetera. And all of those strategies have a cost. And so you really need to run the numbers on where is it most beneficial for you to spend your time, effort and resources and money. Um, So that's not change. But I think, uh, you know, just talking with a a large global employer as part of this study yesterday, same thing is they're they're projecting just insane numbers of, you know, software development type talent. Uh, and, and they're not, if you look at like the LinkedIn profiles, et cetera, today, they're not even there that many are not there, let alone the fact that they won't all come to work for this employer. So with that known, and again, whether it's technical talent or even some of the other skills that people will need in the future, um, with that known that they're not there for us to buy, um, we'll be able to buy a certain number of them. And, and I'm not talking about people like they're inanimate objects, but just in terms of the strategy, if they're not there for us to buy. We need to build them and we need to start yesterday doing that. And some of that will involve how do we identify people within our existing workforce that either have the aptitude and the attitude and the potential to be developed. Uh, and then another piece, like what this employer yesterday was doing, they're going into, you know, certainly colleges and universities and offering free training uh, to people to develop, to hope to build, you know, not only the skills, but an affinity for their brand so that the people will then consider them as an employer. But they're also going into high schools to get kids excited about technical careers and, again, build that brand affinity. Um, you know, I used to joke, it's, always, it's kind of funny to see some of the things that I'm talking about, you know, post sort of post pandemic with leaders and employers, 
but there are also things that I started talking about 10, 12 years ago when I started my speaking business, you know, talent shortages and skills gaps and build, buy, borrow, you know, those are things that I've been talking about for a long time. But back then I was sharing examples of Boeing Corporation going into elementary schools and doing, you know, career fairs and having robot competitions. And, you know, they were 12 years ago looking into the future and saying, we don't have enough, you know, we've got to get the people, the workforce of tomorrow, both developed, and we can't depend on the education system to do that. So what are we going to do to both get uh, young people interested in these types of careers, but then also provide opportunities for them to develop the skills, knowing full well that not all of them will come to work for our company, but a portion of them will, and we've got to take that gamble. So I think that's that's been you know really interesting to kind of see from what I've been talking about for years to where we are today, the challenge is much, much greater today. And it's really a huge opportunity out there for leaders to make a difference in their workplace and their workforce to focus on solving this challenge. And I think it's a, a challenge certainly as I believe, as I see one that will be eternal. And it's not something that will go, ah, that's what it looks like when I've colored it done and we've ticked it is it's just going to be a continual and perpetual challenge for us to remain relevant and provide value where a, a skill might have had a generational or multi-generational lifetime that it could be valuable in the world is that that is now shrinking and becoming different and unknown and more complex. And this challenge, not only how do we go up, you know, upstream, i.e. into elementary schools and get them further up the stream getting, oh, let's try and intercept at the right point. Mm-hmm. You also made this um, challenge that a lot of people have the workforce is that how do they identify who, how do they motivate them? And one of the biggest challenges around just employee mobility is often our own perceptions of what we even see as possible. You know, we're mm-hmm. so um, putting boxes of an identity, of a role, And how do we decouple that to give people this flexibility of dreaming again? Because I remember as elementary, as, you know, young children, well, you could be anything you want. And so what would you like to be? Yet later in our careers, well, you've gone down that path. So you've got these couple of little choices. But to get over here seems like a radical move rather than maybe that should just be more of the norm. So what's your views around how to maybe identify how to increase employee mobility who's doing things really well in navigating this sort of accelerated change Uh, what are some of beyond the i love the build buy and borrow analogy what are some of the other tips and things that leaders can implement to be proactive about the uh, future forecasting that's required for the types of talent we need Sure. And it's, it's like most things, you know, the smaller employers have a, a different challenge. It may be easier, the task in the sense of the size of the workforce, but more difficult in the fact that they don't have access to a lot of the tools and resources that maybe some of the, you know, large global employers do. But, you know, what those large global employers are doing is in many cases using AI tools um, to, you know, scan their workforce and the available workforce and see what skills they possess. And then 
doing the work to say what are the skills, the core skills that are needed in the different jobs, particularly the high, you know, we might have a thousand jobs in our company, but 10 of them we know are going to be real challenges in the future. We don't have the talent that we need. So for those 10, what are the core skill sets that are needed? And then you can look at your workforce that you've done the skills mapping or, or the skills identification for. You can say, here's a job class or people that have 75% of the skills that we're going to need there. So some of them could be developed, you know, through training, learning, mentoring, coaching, um, you know, job experiences to develop into those jobs. So maybe you are working in human resources and you are doing a lot of analytics in terms of, you know, looking at the people data and talent strategy. Well, you have a lot of the core skill sets of a data analyst, you know, so, that's a potential career path to you where before maybe you were thinking you were going to go from, you know, HR business partner to HR manager, to HR director, to HR VP. If we can show you other pathways where the skills that you already have provide opportunities within the company with your existing skills and also some skills that you can skill up, um, then that's where I think where the magic starts to happen. So if you're a small employer, then that might mean just using some assessments and getting people's core skill sets and putting them in an Excel spreadsheet um, and then identifying the skills for the jobs and starting to draw lines on that. If you're a larger employer, again, you're using, um, you know, some artificial intelligence tools and maybe, uh, you know, some more complex systems to be able to, one organization that we talked to global, large global employer, they have a whole portal that is they've, they've patented, you know, because again, many, many employees and good, good resources behind them, but they have an employee portal where the employee can log in um, and they, they say they own their skill sets. So they, through assessments and through artificial intelligence tools will say, Jennifer, you have these 30 skills. I can agree or disagree with that. So I can say, I actually don't have that one, <laughs> or I can maybe add skills to there that I believe I have that then maybe I can take assessments. And then their tool will start to show me opportunities for career paths or provide learning uh, opportunities for me to develop those skills. So it's everything, you know, like everything else in the workplace, there's the simple way of doing it. And there's the complex and expensive way of doing it. I like to encourage everyone to look at the people who have the budget, the time, the resources, and are spending a lot of money on it and say, what can you learn from them and apply in your 10-person organization? Instead of so often, you know, when I'm up there talking and I, sh I, I was talking with someone this week, I said, you know, I used to I'd share an example of Google, you know, here's what Google is doing to, you know, understand um, how teams work or whatever. And almost always someone in the audience would raise their hand and went, we're not Google. We don't have the money. I'm like, but Google's already spent the money to learn that people need to have psychological safety on teams in order to perform well. So you don't have to. That's why I'm showing you Google not to say you need to do exactly what they did, but what can you take from that that you can apply in your own world? It's interesting, isn't it, where we might be able to join dots, you know, because we've done the thinking of, ah, take this, this is why it's relevant, and here apply it to your particular challenge and your particular pool of, of resources or people that you collaborate with. And often we can't see ourselves. It's a bit like when you were humbly describing, well, I don't know why I was picked or why me or all of these things, to for someone, well, I'm not Google, so how can I do that? You know, when we're of ourselves, we're often the worst critic. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at skills and looking at assessments, 
one of the challenges I, I think we've seen is that you're your own worst critic in a lot of instances and where, you know, we, we've seen lots of studies and lots of places, whether it's World Economic Forum, McKinsey's, LinkedIn, putting things like adaptability, resilience as, you know, number one or certainly top five most desired skills. It's uh, something we've been focusing very hard on to understand you know, who, why, and when, what are the environmental factors like team support, being psychological safety, like work stress, skills like unlearning, what do I, can I unlearn, what is my mental flexibility, what are things like my level of hope, how are these components from a scientific standpoint going to help me navigate or even see a goal and a pathway and then have the agency to deal with getting there, and so there's this sort of balance, isn't it, between, oh, we need these technical things of programmers or these bits. And then, oh, they're not, you know, just numbers. They're human beings. You know, we're people who have lives that have, you know, pets, children, you know, all sorts of things that go on mm-hmm. that we have to harness and we have to get into. I'll come back to something you said earlier of inflow. So we might need to be courageous when we're doing something new different for the first time and then find these moments of flow that that come on where for you in in certain teams right now uh do you see this opportunity for that reskilling and the upskilling to be very practical so you've talked about get a skills assessment do some excel spreadsheets with lines on it or use ai if you're an individual in that um, what would you advise them they can start to begin to do to help them navigate what's coming? Well, it, it kind of goes back to where, what I said in the beginning, uh, volunteer for hard things, uh, you know, offer to be on a cross-functional team, uh, let your manager or your leader know that you want to develop these skills and, and look for opportunities for you to do so. Again, whether that's a, a problem to solve within your organization. One of the things that, again, I've, I've said it for years, but it's, it was relevant last week when I was talking about leadership development, skills development. It's a quote I got from, I think, a Forbes article way back when, and I don't remember who said it, but um, you know, we talk about the issue of whether leaders are born or made. And I can argue both sides of that. Um, you know, just for the sake of argument, I do believe like my son, he's turning 30 this weekend, but he's just, you know, got a couple of degrees and did some co-op. So he's, he's about a year and a half into his first big boy job, (laughs) but from the very beginning, Andy was a leader, you know, at three and four, he's the one in the neighborhood that's barking at the kids, tell them what to do. Now they weren't necessarily all following him, but he, he had some natural leadership tendencies, which, you know, have misfired a lot over the course of his young life. But now that he's in the workplace and he's getting opportunities, he's really taking on, I'm excited to see, you know, him volunteering for things or being placed on teams where he's learning and growing. And that leadership skill is really developing. So are leaders born or made? They're both. But really, ultimately, leaders are developed over time through the opportunities and the challenges that they're faced with um, so that they learn what works, what doesn't work. They can see what other behaviors are modeled. So I think with particularly this, you know, quote, soft skills, the adaptability, the, um, you know, the, the things that are in demand today, the agility, the innovation, the creativity, those skills um, and maybe you have some expertise here that you can share more than me, but at least my, my thoughts are that they're not necessarily, well, I've read a book or taken an online course and now I am more adaptable. 
adaptability, for example, comes from, I've been faced with a problem that an obstacle that was put in my way that prevented the path that I had planned to go on. And how did I analyze the best course of action to take as a result of that? You know, that would be one example. So giving people opportunities to be on teams, uh, to solve real world challenges, uh, and then also looking at how they uh, react and respond to the challenges that are thrown upon them. That's where people develop and grow. Um, and even with some of the things that you can learn and gain more knowledge of through education, it's still that real world application where I think a lot of it becomes real. It's very true. And I think um, one of the challenges is when we're asked to change and it doesn't look like something that we want and we might not be able to respond and we just go into reaction mode and we go into defense mode because we're trying to protect something that maybe it comes back to, you know, a career they love. I love what I'm doing. And therefore this change, if I see it as taking that away from me, let's say it's a particular way I do something. And now there's a better way. Technology is coming in, solving that kind of piece is, you know, when you have a mindset of abundance and you might embrace a lot of these technologies, all you see is opportunity. For many people, they're seeing this, um, sense of loss, this sense of actually build my career of what I love. I've done that. I'm doing it. And now it's at risk. What, you know, what can one do in that situation if that's where they are in their space mm -hmm. and they're feeling attacked, they're feeling at loss, they're feeling like something they've loved, something they've crafted, something they've invested their energy and heart into is now becoming dislodged is now becoming a different space, something they don't recognize anymore. How do they transcend and how do they deal with those situations, whether they're a leader or they're in their first big boy job, whatever it yeah. might be. Yeah. What, what I think can they I, do with that, Jennifer? I always say everyone has um, the opportunity to lead, even if you're an individual contributor, and sometimes that's leading yourself. But yeah. I think it, it's, you know, to your point, the mark of a good leader, when there is resistance, is not to just push back on the resistance and, and tell people to go forward. It's to start to ask questions as to understand why people are resisting change. And, and to your point, it's, I'm scared, I'm afraid I'm not good enough, or this is gonna change something that I feel is good for me. So that then, uh, you know, the leader of the change uh, can provide information. Sometimes that information is a listening ear. I understand that this is scary for you, but here are the resources that we're going to provide you. And I know that we may not be, you know, hundred percent successful on the first try and I'm not expecting, you know, whatever that is, sometimes it's reassurance. Sometimes it's, well, actually that's incorrect. Let me show you the reasons why that's not going to happen, or this is going to happen instead. Um, so sometimes it's reassurance, sometimes it's information, and sometimes it's just, um, let's give this a try. And if you fail, then it's okay. You know, um, that's where we're going to be able to help people to overcome resistance is to show them, I guess you can call it vision, you know, to, to point, to point at what's beyond the hill, even if you haven't seen it, but to help them to picture it, to visualize it, what it will look like when we accomplish this and why I need your help for us to get there. And sometimes that's the conversation you have to have with yourself. You know, I got I to look 
try to envision beyond that hill and say, if I do this thing that I really don't want to do, what could potentially happen for good rather than focusing on the reasons why I don't want to do it? And I guess a lot of it is contextual where you talked about psychological safety, this ability to create a place where there isn't judgment when we fall over. When we're young and we're children, we're trying these things. Well, we're praised when we have a go as much as we're praised when we succeed. Right. Whereas latterly, the systems and structures and playbooks that exist is often around the result. The applause is the end result, is the outcome. And we've designed this system where management, where structure, where corporations are much more orientated around the end result, rightfully so. But then how much of the playbook, how much of the you know, reward system, how much of the pieces are there for making progress, for having a try, for being naive enough to experiment when an experiment might on the one side go, hey, that didn't work and oh, great, we learned. But do we really have a system in place in corporations that do reward that, that do give that the same kind of applause as much as a, hey, you scored the goal to you kicked the ball? Who knows what direction it went into? So how can companies, if you feel the same, you know, transition through the way in which it's a systematic uh, preference towards the performance, not so much a preference towards learning? Mm -hmm. um, and just love your views on that. If you see that kind of paradox playing out as we're doing many new things, how do we build the systems that are successful? Well, I think we really have to encourage a culture uh, where failure is is a good thing, you know, and, and some of that, again, comes from tracking what are some of the big successes that we've had from trying scary things, uh, you know, things that weren't fully planned, et cetera, because that's probably going to be 20% of the things, you know, that's a number I pulled out of my head, but it's going to be a, a smaller number of the things that you actually try. But often those are the areas that you get the biggest gains. So to, you know, if your culture is not one of those where, failure is encouraged, uh, you know, and not just for the sake of failure, but I tried something different in order to try to make a big gain. It didn't fail to encourage people to, uh, and provide ways for them to have opportunities to do that. But the real important work comes from, okay, that didn't work, but let's sit back and think about what we learned from the failure. You know, it didn't work because, what could we do differently in order to make it successful the next time? So that culture where it's encouraged to take risks, to take challenges when you fail, it's not a punishment as long as you've figured out what you've learned and we may be able to use that in the future. So that goes back to creating opportunities for project teams to work on big problems or challenges, knowing that you know the, the goal of the team is not necessarily immediate success. It's going to be a learning opportunity. Um, so if I'm a leader, even if I'm not working in a culture of failure, I can provide little opportunities for my team, whether that's giving them some time to work on a project that they identify they want to go after or giving them a project that has an uncertain future. Um, so how can I encourage people to take risks, to be critical thinkers about the steps that they take and what worked, what didn't work, and then apply that in the future and reward, as you said, the effort and not just the outcome. It's a lot of what, um, you know, Carol Dweck talks about and that growth mindset is that, are we rewarding the effort or the result? We say, oh, you're really clever, 
is actually not the kind of you know feedback we should be giving to our children mm-hmm. um, and we should be saying uh, and rewarding the effort and I think that it's so ingrained depending on what our cultures are where we've come from of how we then manifest and show up in our lives and if that transition i.e the game has changed the the environment the playground all of these things that we need perhaps to decide which new rules do we need to operate in mm-hmm. uh, where even just the word failure you know it sounds bad and we're trying to redesign it and say oh no it's learning or it's all of these things you know yeah. what is that new phrase that we have that we can define a new relationship with it that we're now in work doing because what is work work you know you turn up and you provide value you're relevant well is work now defined more about learning is it defined more about playing is it defined more about experimental or is actually no that's still got to be this amount of space and we put it out there and is it the two-day you know retreat that leaders go on is it the in time with life, whenever I need something, it's a bit like now, I, you know, I go to YouTube when I want to figure out how to do something, you know, how do I do blah, 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 blah. And I learn it at the moment I need it. Not, oh, can I recall it from my, you know, class I was in two years ago, whatever it may be. So this reality of where we're expecting people to identify the skills, learn new ones, find out ones that we don't even know what the name of this skill is that we're going to need in a year or two's time mm-hmm. and a particular role, I'm, you know, I'm uh, bubbling at the excitement of this, but I recognise a lot of who we've worked with over the years and, and decades are not in that same space. Mm-hmm. And, and the beauty that makes up our society is how do we support all people you know our mission is to make sure no one's left behind wherever they are and I've got two two final questions for you Jennifer and one of them actually I haven't asked anyone before but it came up from a video I saw on LinkedIn just the other day and it was a motivational speaker who was talking to somebody being interviewed and he was feeling a bit down and, and he said do you know what I did is I hired myself right and I went well, that's a really interesting concept. How mm-hmm. might we be able to just disconnect ourselves from ourselves sure. and be able to sit and reflect? So if you were to hire yourself, what would you do? What would you stop doing? And what would you put on pause? Oh, wow. This is, this turned into therapy real quick. <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't planned that way, Jennifer, but it was just... It, it was something that really resonated with me. And I thought, oh, that'd be interesting. I wonder how people would respond to that, especially ones that are executive coaches that deal with those things. If they took a moment and said, actually, if I was looking and I was working with you, I'd extract these goals, I'd understand this, I'd know your direction, I'd say, you know, maybe you should think about pausing this. Maybe you should think about go and join a board, volunteer, whatever it would be. What, what sort of things would you... Well, I, I, it's, it's kind of a joke with my inner circle of friends. I'm, I think I'm a, a really good coach, uh, particularly for leaders who, you know, have an opportunity to make a real impact. I have long said, and I've worked with various coaches. I've, I've you know, I've done life coaching. I've done business mm-hmm. coaching. I've done executive coaching. I've done speaker coaching. I've done all these things. I've been in masterminds. I always uh, tell myself, and, and my friends will say it's a cop out. I am, I am a poor coach E. <laughs> I'm a great coach. I'm a poor coach E because I actually know what my challenges and opportunities are for myself. And I often choose not to do them. (laughs) 
So, so if I were to, uh, you know, hire myself, uh, I would probably really work with myself on looking at what I have been able to achieve and accomplish and some of the situations in the rooms that I've been placed in where I didn't feel like I was qualified to be there, but I actually was able to contribute and remind myself, you've done hard things uh, and, and you do add value and you did deserve to be there and it did make a difference. Uh, so I'd, I'd really work on myself to believe uh, because I, like everyone else, have that, you know, oftentimes imposter syndrome. Um, and then I would, you know, tell myself to stop uh, not believing in myself, but I would also uh, stop not doing some of the things that I know would be helpful. You know, if, if uh, the joy is being on stage and speaking and teaching and leading, but the, the misery is the daily grind to get your name in front of people. But yet, you know, that when, I mean, I, started out like everyone fresh as a daisy in 2022 with my goals. And my goals were to make, you know, three outreaches each week to, you know, potentially secure new opportunities. And I did really well at that for like three weeks in a row. (laughs) And I got all the opportunities that I've booked so far this year as a result of doing that. Um, Did I continue doing the three a week? No, you know, so I begin look at I'd encourage myself to look back at when you do what you know what needs to be done, results happen. Um, and I think for me, again, a lot of coaching other individuals, as well as you know, talking about coaching myself, is looking back and saying, kind of like what we talked about earlier, when you've been faced with similar challenges in the past, what were the results? You were successful. So you know, why are you so afraid to do it again? It's interesting listening. And I, I had no idea how, you know, you'd respond or uh, the ability to reflect on oneself. And we go to our past, we look at evidence, we look at data to try and reset and go, okay, those, you know, neurons that have fired together and wired together that have built up this belief of, you know, perhaps imposter syndrome or not, I need to unlearn those, break those down, because I need to be looking at this other data because I don't, I'm not listening to it. <laughs> um, it's easy to say it's hard to do. It's a bit like, ah, it's been successful, do that activity, I get the results. So I need to change myself to do that again. And I, I think one of the opportunities is there's a cost for the current success that is not necessarily working. You know, because if it works, we repeat it, right? We get the dopamine hit, we do those things and we, we build up that, that piece. And so unlearning that the way in which to do it was, ah, I've got to do those three outreaches. And when I do it, it works, gives us that same data. To break free from that, to adapt into a new realm is maybe to do the things you talked about of what is it brave? What is it new? What have I not done? Right. to solve it, to experiment. Um, because if I keep doing it, I know it will work, but actually it's not a habit I want. It's not something I want to do. And it's something I need, but I don't want. And um, I remember a lot with my coach. So my coach is a chap called Dan Sullivan. And he was uh, doing a lot of work uh, very early on about want and want being a bad thing, right? Mm-hmm. And rewiring no, wanting is a good thing. 
And for 25 years, he wrote down three things he wanted every single day. And that not being something that's a selfish act, um, that in order to serve others, we have to obviously take care of ourselves. And um, so, yeah, lots of interesting thoughts. So my last question, Jennifer, for you, um, because I'm conscious. I hope this one's easier. (laughs) I don't know whether it's easy, but I have asked it many times and I'm, uh, there's always different variety of, of answers and it's when was the last time you did something for the first time and what was it oh you've stumped you stumped the interviewee um I don't know I think that's probably that's a problem if I'm not doing you know I I could point to something like this defense business board, you know, mm-hmm. that, that was new and I'm learning from it, but, um, in the sense of like intentionally saying, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I can't, maybe that's what could shake the cobwebs of two years of COVID <laughs> from my brain is to really challenge myself to do something different. And I think that that's something maybe I should do. Sorry, I don't have a great answer for you there. That is a great answer, Jennifer. (laughs) It's a great answer. It's an honest answer. And I think many of our listeners will resonate with some of our regular ones, you know, and I'll give you some thought and just context of uh, when I ask that question, I do it because I want to learn. I want to learn all of the questions here and why I do the podcast is because I want to learn. I want to meet great people. I want to, you know, be inspired a bit. Like you said, hey, Google spent a load, a ton of money to learn this so you don't have to. So for me, if I get these great, awesome conversations, I can, you know, get maybe the distilled, you know, couple of decades in the trenches of HR from Jennifer and uh, then maybe so can some of the listeners. And so uh, there's kind of two sort of tracks that people respond with. One is quite a literal one of, oh, I did fly fishing or something that was a brand new activity. And And then I was stumped a couple of times with people who it was an event that they would do regularly but they did it with new eyes. So it actually was a new thing they were doing. And it got me thinking about it. Novelty doesn't have to be just the event. It could be the way we approach that event. Right. right. Um, and then we're exploring these boundaries. And I, I, I've done it a couple of times in a few different ways to experiment. So I, I've got two dogs. I take them for a walk every morning. We kind of go to the same places. So new for me was, ah, right. Karen and I, my wife would go right. every Saturday. We want to go to a new place. Mm-hmm. And then what I did was, well, if we go to the same place, what could I do that would be different, that might experience it differently? So uh, in some areas, how far could I go with my eyes shut? What would I then do? How would I feel? How would I approach it? What, what I and I'm just playing, you know, with these things to try and build up my muscles of realizing that you can experience so many different things that don't have to be a brand new event. It can be a similar event, but we look at it through a different way. And yeah. we gain then new perspective. So for uh, you, maybe it could just be in, in those areas, something you do all of the time, but maybe do it entirely differently. What would that so be like? To look at it with different eyes. I guess the, if you look back over the last couple of years, uh, going from speaking on stages to, you know, thousands of people to, you know, after March, 2020 being asked to, or pursuing opportunities to speak in my little office here to a webcam yeah. and a microphone. And that was uh, really hard. I, I think people who don't, we're all, you know, Zoom zombies now 
couple of years into this, but to give a presentation and engage someone online is exponentially harder. You know, event planners, et cetera, want to pay you less money because it's quote easier. It's not. Um, and it only took like one presentation for me to be like, I was, I think the first one I did, I booked it, you know, obviously well in advance, it was a, a half day workshop that was supposed to be in person. And so I reached out to them. I'm like, we're not still doing this, right? (laughs) They're like, no, no, no. We're all set up. We're doing it on zoom. You know, we've got breakout rooms. We've got all these things. So I had, that was something I had to learn as well, but I was just dreading, dreading, dreading. I'm like, how am I going to, first of all, talk for, you know, a a workshop, four hour workshop, especially you're doing a lot of group work and et cetera. And they didn't want to do, actually, they didn't want to do the breakout rooms because they didn't trust that their people wouldn't leave. (laughs) So I'm like, you literally want me to talk to people for four hours online. And they're like, yes, yes, we do. (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it? The, no matter how much I tried yeah. to steer them from it, they, they, you know, they said that's what they wanted. And so I really, for, you know, I had a lot of that stuff dialed in because I'd been doing it for years. And so yeah. I had to kind of look at it again with fresh eyes. Okay, well, I can't say talk amongst yourselves at your tables, but how can I engage them? I can reimagine you know, it. Put a question in the chat. And I, after that day was over, I collapsed in the floor. You know, I turned off the webcam and just collapsed. I was so, so spent. And then I got a, uh, a friend of mine who sent me an email. She had attended the workshop and she said, um, you know, I was disappointed. And again, things about a lot of times presenting online, they didn't have it set up to where I was actually even on the screen. It was just my slides. And she said, once I saw I wasn't going to be able to see and interact with you, I took my laptop into the kitchen and started cleaning up. And it was, she said, it was basically like listening to your podcast. <laughs> she, said, she said, I really enjoyed it, but it was different. And I was like, uh, I think that was a compliment, <laughs> but I think that, you know, I got better at it uh, yeah. because I learned as I did, you know, here's a way to engage people in the chat. Here's a way to come back on screen. Yeah. Yes. I need to be insistent with organizers that for a longer presentation, we do need to be able to break out in rooms. You can trust your people, you know, yeah. that kind of, uh, that is not what I would have chosen to do. And it is not still my preference today, but I've gotten better at it because I was forced to do it. Forced to do it. And we get feedback loops and then we decide each day, what do we want to do the yeah. same? What do we want to do differently? Well, one now, last piece, because I, 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 I it, as you were talking there about keynotes and stages and things, I remember a chap called uh, David Roberts. In fact, he's an ex um been involved in lots of uh, three-letter agencies, should we say, Mm -hmm. and he gave a a talk and he was the closing uh, particular event. And so there's a stage and all these various things. And there were some serious heavyweight people and everyone was, you know, ah, we've got Dave Roberts here and a few people had heard him speak before and all sorts of things. And he gave his speech and he came off stage, came and sat, in the audience to give it. And it was really um, totally shifting the energy, the expectation, all of the various things. And it's the situations of where, how do you change the dynamic? How do you shift energy? As you said, the adaption required from delivering in person to online isn't 
just the technicalities of things. It's what's the actual arc? What's the story? It's exhausting. Um, I gave a keynote to the um, Event Planners Association of America, sort of halfway, I say halfway through the pandemic, still in the pandemic, but where they're all figuring out, wow, what do we now do? And some are just tearing the hair out and others are going, this is the best thing that's happened just by their, their viewpoint. So I, I, I know that we can have uh, lots more great conversational jazz. I've really enjoyed it, Jennifer, but I'm conscious that the, all of my episodes seem to overrun from the design of the time, but hopefully <laughs> our audience have enjoyed it. I certainly have. And Jennifer, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way that they can get in touch? Sure. You can find all things Jennifer McClure at jennifermcclure.net. Uh, if you want to engage with me, let's connect on LinkedIn. Uh, should be, if you put in Jennifer McClure, I sure hope I come up first since I've been there forever. Um, and then on Twitter at Jennifer McClure. Those are the places I tend to hang out the most. Wonderful. Sincere gratitude and what an awesome set of stories and experience. And I've really enjoyed it. So thanks again. Thanks for having me. Do you have the level of adaptability to survive and thrive the rapid changes ahead? Has your resilience got more comeback than a yo-yo? Do you have the ability to unlearn in order to reskill, upskill and break through? Find out today and uncover your adaptability profile and score, your AQ. Visit aqai.io to gain your personalized report across 15 scientifically validated dimensions of adaptability. For a limited time, enter code PODCAST65 for a complimentary AQME assessment. AQAI, transforming the way people, teams and organisations navigate change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Decoding AQ. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast directory and we'd love to hear your feedback. Please do leave a review and be sure to tune in next time for more insights from our amazing guests.